If you open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. When I came to Troas to speak the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of him and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. The word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. Sometime soon after I got saved, I got sick wasn't a serious illness, but it was enough to lay me low for a couple of days. I missed a few days of work. And we, had a, we were going to a church in, in Springfield, Virginia. Uh, they had a revival going on, and yeah, we were trying to be there, but I was sick. And, but, but on Wednesday night, there was a healing service. So I wanted to go see what that was about, and I thought if there's going to be a healing service, well, I need to be healed I'm sick, so I'm going to go and, and, and have them pray over me. So we bundled up, and, and we, we went for prayer. I was standing in the front row when the speaker came down and started praying for people who had stepped forward for prayer. And, and so he, when he hovered over me, I told him I was sick, and he prayed a very animated prayer. There was a lot of shouting and waving and that sort of thing going on. Then he proclaimed, you have victory in Jesus. Be healed. And I, I, I was absolutely thrilled. Oh, my, I have victory in Jesus. And this guy has healed me. And I was walking back to my seat, and I was still sick. I said, what was that about? Well, you know, I went through the usual self-examination. Must be something wrong with me, something I did. But, but, but. 
I, I, we just need to acknowledge this because we, we hear this all the time in Christian circles, don't we? We hear that we have victory in Jesus. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians. John talks about it in 1 John. We have victory in Christ. We know it. We believe we have victory in Christ. But what, what does it mean? What does it mean to me here today? What did it mean to me that day that I was waiting to be healed and, and didn't receive the healing? To some people, victory in Christ means that, that we win. We win in everything we do. If we trust in Jesus, if we can work up enough faith, uh, we can come out on top. We can be the winner in whatever endeavor, you know, a football game or a baseball game, a, a, a raise, the job promotion, you know, that sort of thing. To others, it means that we have victory over sickness and sin, or maybe victory over the devil, or victory over demons. It means that we don't have to be victims. Now, to, to other people, it may mean other things. It's okay if you don't believe those things. So the question is, what, what does victory mean? What does victory in Christ mean? Today's passage is about victory. It's about triumph. But who or what we are triumphing over might come as a little bit of a surprise by the time we get to the end of the passage. We're going to see what Paul means when he said, Christ leads us in triumphal procession. So we'll talk about that parade. But first I want to show you something. So I want to make sure that we keep 2 Corinthians in context with 1 Corinthians. So I want to show you something about Paul's second letter to Corinthians, a letter to a church that was agitated towards Paul. They were upset with him. And there were a group of teachers in there uh, that were kind of stirring the pot, claiming that Paul wasn't really an apostle, that his credentials were false, and uh, using Paul's suffering as an accusation against his apostolic authority. Now, Paul had already sent a harsh letter to them, and now things were tense again. Uh, how's Paul going to react to the fact that there's still tension here? If you remember from last week, Paul started chapter 1 with a blessing. He started with a blessing and an encouragement, then immediately jumped into this theological teaching about comfort and how comfort works in a believer's life. God comforts those uh, in affliction so that they can comfort others. That's just a shorthand for what Paul did in chapter 1. Now, following that, he shared the fact that he himself had suffered. Paul himself was afflicted by some set of circumstances in Asia, western Turkey, and notice that he was comforted, and then he experienced that comfort from the Lord, and then he, he shared that comfort, that his comfort came through suffering. God comforted Paul so that Paul could comfort the Corinthians. He was putting it all on display, uh, so he wanted to comfort them in their time of affliction. They were afflicted in a totally different way than Paul was, but that didn't matter to Paul. Paul wanted to show them how all of this worked. So instead of arguing with them, instead of getting nasty with them again, he begins his letter with comfort and encouragement. Now, there'll be some correction coming along a little bit later, but he wanted to start out on that positive note. Then at the end of chapter 1, Paul tells them 
that the reason that he didn't, didn't visit them sooner, that's what they were so upset about, one of the things they were so upset about, uh, was that uh, he, wanted, he wanted to spare them. You know, he wanted, when he came in, he wanted to be able to experience comfort and joy with them and, and through them, but he wanted to spare them. So don't miss what Paul did there. They, they were mad. They're ready to pick a fight. You know how that works when somebody's mad at you and ready to pick a fight. They're accusing Paul of neglecting them. There were men in the church who were stoking those accusations and flaming them, making the situation worse. Meanwhile, Paul is struggling in a sea. He's got his own set of problems there. He's having a rough time. He's got churches all over Macedonia, brand new churches, and they're growing quickly. They all seem to have problems that need correction. It would be very easy for Paul, when he hears about the Corinthians, to just throw a fit. It'd be very easy for Paul to go back to them again and say, why don't you people grow up? I told you you were a bunch of babies. When are we going to put this stuff behind us? Paul doesn't really, at this point in his life, have time for childish nonsense. Instead, he writes firmly, but he writes gently to them. He writes with compassion and mercy, telling them that he trusts them, that he is one of them. He loves them and wants to see good things for them. All along, Paul trusts in Christ to defend him. He doesn't defend himself. But likewise, Paul trusts that Christ is in the Corinthians as well. Now, at least in most of them. Now, this is a really important point because everything Paul does is predicated on his trust that Christ is working in them, drawing them closer, changing them. There's still work to be done amongst the Corinthians. They're young Christians, as we all are, so Paul is patient and loving, and always encouraging, sometimes firm, but never ceasing in his love for them, never ceasing in his affection for them, never ceasing in the high hopes and high expectations that he has for them. But you know what? He never stops teaching them as well. Everything he does is to teach, and that's exactly what he's doing in these first two chapters. He's showing them how it's done. Paul might as well walk through Corinth with a sandwich board on with messages on either side saying, you want to see how to handle a godly conflict? Watch me. Watch me as I point to Christ. Watch me as I walk out those things that I've been teaching you. Watch me as I put on display Christ in me. Paul just gave the Corinthians a case study in how a minister, uh, a, a, a messenger of the gospel, should minister comfort to those around him. And Paul's just getting started. He's just getting revved up. Paul's going to, going to amp up this lesson now. He's going to increase the intensity and take them even deeper. He's going to give them an opportunity to show him that they get it, that they understand what he's saying. He's going to give them an opportunity to, to show them that Christ is in them. And on the way, Paul's going to teach us all a lesson about how to have victory in Christ. How to join that triumphant uh, procession. And he's going to do it by sharing his personal experiences. By sharing his testimony. So this is part three of our series, 
I am content, and uh, we're going to be going through 2 Corinthians chapter 2 this morning. The title of our sermon is, fittingly enough, Triumph, with a big exclamation point. So, Paul's going to teach his lesson by portraying three facets of the pain that he's experienced, each one building on the one before. In verses 1 through 4, we're going to see Paul's actual pain. In 5 through 11, we're going to show Paul's, the, the cause of Paul's pain. And in 12 through 17, we're going to see the triumph over the pain. So let's take, let's take a look at Paul's pain first. Paul's already told them that he spared them by not visiting. He didn't want to make this an uncomfortable thing. So what happened? What did he spare them of? He begins to explain in verse 1 of chapter 2. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Now, the last visit, whatever that was... The last visit that Paul made to Corinth was painful. Verse 1 begins again with the word for, so we need to look prior to see what the context is. Paul just, had just told them that the reason that he didn't come to visit was to spare them. Now he reveals that he didn't want another painful visit. Now, well, once again, we're lacking in details. Paul doesn't spend a lot of time explaining the situation here. What is evident is that Paul and the Corinthians are keenly aware. They know what happened. There's tension. There's hurt feelings on both sides here. And it becomes obvious to Paul that none of it is resolved yet. The tension is still hanging in the air. Now, that leaves Paul with a dilemma. If he visits, that visit is not going to go well because of all the tension. But if he doesn't, There are people stoking the flames behind the scenes here. Things could very well get worse. But he truly loves the Corinthian church, and he trusts that Christ is in them. His love and his dilemma are expressed in verse 2, where he says, For if I cause you pain, who's there to make me gain but the one whom I have pained? Glad, but the one whom I have pained. Paul is saying, if I visit right now, this is going to hurt. Maybe both of us. It'll cause, I know it'll cause you pain, but you are the ones that bring me joy. You are the ones that make me glad. I have no joy in hurting you, Paul's saying, but we have this situation. We have this situation between us that needs to be addressed in a godly manner. We need to deal with this. We can't just ignore it and hope that it goes away. So Paul decides to write instead of visit, so that when he does visit, they can enjoy each other's fellowship. It's what he means when he writes in verse 3, and I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice, for I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. Now, Paul wants the in-person visit to be a joy for them and for him. So, He writes to instruct, to teach, maybe to rebuke a bit more, hoping they'll have time to reflect on what he writes before he comes again. But even at all that, Paul wants to be very careful that he explains to them how much they mean to him. So in verse 4, we see, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So, I I know that trying to wade through this is difficult. Paul's not entirely clear 
on everything he says. It's a little hard to understand. But the idea that he's trying to convey is that somewhere in that first letter, this tension occurred, and, and now the tension has hurt them and Paul. Paul is wounded. He's wounded, but he's not bitter. He wants them to know that the wound is deep only because, listen, he wants them to know that the wound is deep only because his love for them is deep as well. Isn't there a truth in there for all of us? I mean, can't we relate to that? We can only be hurt by those who are close to us. When something like this happens, the depth of our pain is always a reflection of the depth of our love. What Paul wants the Corinthians to know is that the wounds that have been inflicted upon him do, do not diminish his love for them. So we see that it is Paul who's been wounded. We see Paul's pain. Paul made at least one visit and something happened either with the church or with the group or maybe an individual. So Paul, not wanting to cause further pain, writes instead of visits. Do you, do you see what Paul's doing here? I mean, put this in the context of all the teaching he's made so far about comfort and uh, where we receive our comfort from, how we comfort others. He's showing them how Christ in him deals with them. If Paul responded in the flesh, because we know Paul was a little bit of a fiery guy from time to time, right? Uh, he would be eager to confront them. He'd be eager to get down there and make sure that everything was done right, to get them back in line, get his due. Instead, instead he teaches them about comfort. He teaches them about suffering and handling pain. He professes his love for them, telling them that Christ in him and in them is bigger than any problem they could have. Did you catch that? Christ in him and Christ in them is bigger than any problem they may have, anything they can endure. Now, if we just stopped right there, that should be enough for all of us to get through any relational problems that we may endure in our lifetime. Any, any, any difficulties we may have, any tension we may suffer, any fights, any disagreements, any disappointments, any failings, any shortcomings, any criticisms, any heartaches that we may encounter on our path, in particular with those that are close to us. If Christ is in you, he is bigger than all of those alleged problems. None of them are a threat to your relationship with that person. None of them can end the relationship. You know why? Because we, we are united to him, and being united to him, we are united to each other. And we're united for eternity. Now, that means that you can get through whatever is going on. You can get through whatever is going on in the moment. You can get through the moment because you have the promise of eternity. You catch that? The only thing that can happen, the only thing that can can cause that some hesitation is that you decide to set your eyes on the moment. 
And to do that, you have to ignore eternity. You can make up your mind to be so centered on what you want, what you expect right now, that you completely miss what God has planned for you, the blessings that God has planned for you in the long run. It doesn't mean you lose eternity. It just means that the moment that you're focusing on is going to be a lot harder than it has to be. We need to be willing to sacrifice those things we expect out of this moment for the promise of glory in eternity, for the promise of unity we have. Isn't that what Paul tells the Colossians? It is. He he says it in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul just lays it out succinctly. Look at eternity, not the moment. So in his dealings with the Corinthian church, Paul has set his eyes on eternity and refuses to allow whatever has transpired to rob him of the joy of knowing that he and the Corinthians are united in Christ. Paul's pain is secondary to his union with Christ. Let me say that again. Paul's pain is secondary to his union with Christ. He's willing to put it on the back burner and focus on being united with Christ and with his brothers and sisters. So that means that his pain is secondary to his union with Christ and with the Corinthian church. Paul's teaching continues with the second facet of his pain, the cause of it. Now, Paul's going to go into a bit more detail, not a whole lot, but watch carefully. He still only gives enough information for, for us to to understand what's going on and to ground the lesson that he's trying to teach him. He doesn't go into a lot of the gory details. Verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you. Now, um, what Paul is saying here is, well, I know that I've caused some pain. You know that, that uh, I've experienced some pain. Uh, and, but when the pain that comes to me comes to all of us. He's talking about a union in Christ. We'll get to that in a second. A lot of biblical scholars believe that Paul's talking about the sinner in 1 Corinthians 5. You can check that later on. This, there was a man in the Corinthian church that was living with his father's wife. And Paul instructed the church to disfellowship that man. Now, that may be true, but I've got to be honest with you, uh, taking too much time to try and figure out exactly who Paul is talking to may just cause us to miss Paul's point here. Apparently, whoever this man is, he's caused trouble for Paul. He's, and Paul, referring to their unity in Christ again, tells the Corinthians that any damage that has occurred to him occurs to them as well. Uh, if one suffers, they all suffer. If one cries, they all cry. If one rejoices, they all rejoice. Paul's resolution to this is in verses 6 through 8, and it's for the entire church to forgive the man. Now, we've got to be careful with this, 
Because we know from Matthew 18 that any forgiveness extended to somebody has to be predicated on their repentance, uh, and it has to be sincere. It has to be contrite repentance. So we're going to assume that this man has repented and he's given an honest, sincere repentance. Paul says that the punishment of the majority was enough, and what he means is that the chastisement of the church, the calling out of this man's sin, uh, the reproach for him to confess his sin and to repent uh, has done its work, and now some rebuilding has to occur. That's the whole uh, point of Matthew 18, is not to punish people, but to restore them to fellowship. So Paul wants them to exercise that here. Paul wants them to restore the man uh, to fellowship. We see that in verse 8. And affirm their love in the same way that Paul has just affirmed his love for them. See, he's saying, here's how I feel about you. Here's what I do about it. Now you need to do the same thing to the guy. We go right back to uh, we receive comfort in our afflictions so that we can comfort others. If they don't, it'll be grievous to the man. His confession will have had no impact on the people around him. He'd still be trying to prove himself. By grieving him, uh, if we understand this union in Christ, they would be grieving themselves. They'd be grieving Paul as well. Paul wants them to put any malice, any offense behind them. Paul knows that the process they had to go through with this man was a tough one. Church discipline is never easy. It's excruciatingly painful. Uh, but he also knows this, the, that forgiving can be even tougher. Once we've gone through that process, uh, the actual act of forgiveness and restoration is going to be even harder than a discipline. C.S. Lewis once said, we all agree that forgiveness is a beautiful idea until we have to practice it. Amen. Now that the offender has repented... Paul wants the wounds to heal. He wants them to forgive. Forgive as they have been forgiven, and he wants them to comfort this man. See, what we're seeing here is, is the discipline of Christ. Christ doesn't discipline and call us to repentance and then keep beating us over the head with the thing that we did. He doesn't keep on disciplining after repentance occurs. He, give, he forgives completely. He separates us from our sin as far as the east is separated from the west. Amen? Paul is calling the Corinthians to do the same thing. And he's calling for us. He's calling for us to do the same thing as well. We have the same charge. We have the same assignment. If we can get our arms around this, we can avoid a lot of the troubles we have in our marriages. We can avoid a lot of the troubles we have in our extended family relationships. We can avoid a lot of the tension we have out there in the world. In verse 9, Paul tells them that his instructions to them were a test of their obedience. He knows it was hard. He's going to find out if they can do it. Paul knows how difficult it was to carry these things out. Church discipline is never easy. But their willingness to go down that path, Paul sees as the evidence of Christ in them. Their willingness to do the hard thing, Paul views as the evidence of Christ in them. Now, in verse 10, 
Paul not only supports them in their forgiveness, but he forgives as well. Now, why would Paul do that if, if they were hurt? Well, again, it's a reference to the union they all have in Christ. Paul forgives a man for anything he may have done to hurt Paul because in hurting the church, he would have hurt Paul as well. So this man, and perhaps those around him, had caused trouble for Paul. It actually brought him to tears. But Paul decides to do exactly what he's asking the church to do, to forgive and embrace the man as a way of evidencing Christ in him. So forgiveness, listen, forgiveness diffuses the cause of Paul's pain. Paul's forgiveness diffuses the cause of Paul's pain. And now that pain is no longer a factor in Paul's relationship with this man, no longer a factor in Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church. Paul does it for the sake of the church to be a good example to them and does it in the presence of Christ who will be his witness and his judge. So in verse 11, we see that he does it so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we're not ignorant of his designs. Well, what does Paul mean by that? Well, Paul knows that the enemy can use any lack of forgiveness, any bitterness that is growing in the hearts of these people, uh, the bitterness that follows unforgiveness, to drive a wedge deeper into those relationships. And we've had these experiences, haven't we? People who were bitter with us that are unforgiving, uh, a wedge gets drives deeper in. Perhaps we've been bitter with somebody and unforgiving. A wedge gets drive deeper into that relationship. It would be so easy, so easy for those folks to hang on to their hurt feelings, to hang on to their disappointments, to stroke them, to nurture them, to take them out and show everybody how grandly they had been damaged un until that bitterness grows into outright hatred. Bitterness can do that. We know this is true. It can fester. It can boil just underneath the surface until it becomes malignant and begins to eat us up from the inside out. You see, that's the battle. It's the bitterness we have doesn't damage the other person. It hurts us. I've had this battle before. I'm sure some of you have had it as well. Once I, I was hurt deeply by somebody who was very close to me. And when it first happened, I prayed for that man who hurt me. My prayers went something like this. Oh God, show him who was right. Vindicate me. Oh, I waited for that day that he would come crawling on and he said, forgive me, I've hurt you, John. In response, God blessed that man. And not just once. He did it repeatedly. So, being the wise person I am, I figured I had to change my tactics because that prayer wasn't working. Okay, I started praying, God, change him. 
make him a better person. And maybe while you're at it, make him a little bit more objective about the pain he's caused me. So that, that was my prayer for a while. And God just continued to bless him. And meanwhile, I was miserable. I was just miserable. Anybody know that misery? Realizing I was wrong in my prayers, I prayed, God, forgive him. Now, yeah, I wanted to be magnanimous. I wanted to be merciful. God, forgive him for all that pain he caused me. And then I would remind God about the pain. God continued to bless him. And I got to tell you something. To my shame, to my deep disappointment in myself, those blessings bothered me. They, they just bothered me. And while, while I was, should have been praising God for how he was moving in someone else's life and how he was proving that he blesses his children, I was jealous. I was resentful. You know who I was? I was Jonah. I was Jonah. Have you ever been Jonah? Just mad at God for how he was moving in someone else's life. I carried that burden around for nearly five years. And I got to tell you something, it was, it was eating me up inside. No matter what I prayed, God simply blessed him. I couldn't maneuver God into a corner to do the things that I wanted him to do. And you know what my problem was? I was just mad. I was mad. And and the, the real difficulty I had was, in, in any worldly sense, I had every right to be mad. I'd been treated unjustly. And as long as I allowed my bitterness with him to overshadow my relationship with Christ, I struggled. See, that's what was really happening. It wasn't the bitterness I had over this man. It was the fact that that bitterness had become an impediment to my relationship with Christ. And I was sharing this with a dear brother in Christ who upon hearing what I had to say told me, it sounds to me like you're miserable and he seems to be doing just fine. How's that working for you? He counseled me that my resentment and bitterness was a sin that called for repentance. I'd never thought of it that way. But it was. My, my, we're, we're not supposed to be bitter. We're, we're not supposed to, to, to uh, be mad at our enemies. We're not supposed to be angry at those people around us. So it, it called for repentance. And it wasn't until I was convicted of my sin and repented that I was free. Once I repented, I was free of the hurt that I suffered. I had to ask God to forgive me, not him. I had to repent of my lack of forgiveness. And once that window opened, once I saw that, I was shattered by the arrogance that I had shown. I was a recipient of amazing, saving grace, and here I was withholding it from someone else. It was a moment of crystal clarity for me. And a moment that I now look back on and see as a moment of God's grace extended towards me 
because that was standing between me and him. God was saying, do you see what this is doing to you? Can we get this out of the way so we can go deeper? My Father in heaven wanted good things for me, even if they were hard. He was drawing me closer, and I was trying as hard as I could to resist him. You ever been there? You ever experienced something like that? Have you ever been so fixated on self-justification that you miss the opportunity to give God praise and thanks? Have you ever been so filled with bitterness and disappointment that you miss the blessings that God has for you? I thank God for his patience. I wanted him to smite my friend and everything I'd done had deserved being smitten myself. Paul gets this. It's what he's trying to teach the Corinthians. He rolls it out, uh, and as he rolls it out, he uses personal experience to demonstrate our third facet of Paul's pain, triumph over the pain. He starts by describing his trip to Macedonia. Uh, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, Paul had this opportunity to preach in Troas, uh, now, that's in Asia, the, the western part of Turkey. We know Paul was concerned and in tears about the letter that he had sent. And so we're just assuming that that letter is the letter to 1 Corinthians. Uh, but Paul sent Titus to deliver the letter to Corinth and had hoped that Titus would meet him in Troas with good news about how the letter was received in Corinth. Uh, so we have a, a, a door was open for me in the Lord, comma, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Now, Paul's on pins and needles. He wants to know what's going on. He doesn't have a clue. He's, he's apprehensive about what the Corinthians will think and what will say. Not, not because he, he's nervous about how he's viewed, but because he loves them. And he wants to see them come under correction. So he's, he's, he's disappointed that Titus didn't show up where he thought he would show up. Uh, he's expecting the worst at this point, And he's so distracted that he's having a hard time preaching the gospel. He's so consumed with this that he can't do what he's called to do. So it's, it's in the autumn of the year. If Titus is going to come back, he would not have taken a boat across the sea. The seas weren't safe then. Titus would have gone north uh, through Athens and then across Macedonia and down into Asia, down into Turkey. So uh, Paul decides to head north and to go to Macedonia, hoping that maybe he'll run into Titus somewhere along the way. So we see Paul's anxiety. We see his apprehension. But what we need to see here is how Paul handles his anxiety. Look at how he deals with his disappointment. Look at how he deals with his dashed expectations. Look at how he deals with the doubt he has about what's going on. But thanks be to God, he says in verse 14, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. This is absolutely beautiful. Paul gives thanks. He's anxious. He's nervous. He, he, he longs for good news from Corinth. He's not receiving it. 
And Paul stops and gives thanks to God, who in Jesus Christ leads us in triumphal procession. Christ leads Paul in a victory march. Think about that for a second. Paul probably didn't feel very victorious. Paul didn't feel very much like he was triumphing over this situation. We need to see the image that Paul's presenting here as well. We all know the story about the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ on Palm Sunday. Uh, you know, it was a magnificent parade. People are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, King of da- uh, Son of David. They're laying palms. His followers are behind him. The, the people who had just seen him raise Lazarus from the dead are following him into Jerusalem. And although that, that one was a bit misdirected, it's a great picture of what Paul's trying to show us. Jesus leading his children in this regal victory march, his fragrance drifting behind him, and eventually landing upon those who are following him and celebrating him, saturating them until it begins to flow from them as well, filling everywhere they walk, everywhere they go, filling them with the sweetness and the love of Jesus Christ. You can see this flowing in waves from Jesus Christ onto his followers and from his followers into the community behind him. And the followers, the followers are us. The followers are the church. The followers are you and me. If we call upon Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it's us. If you call upon Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are in that magnificent parade. You are in that triumphal procession following Christ his aroma falling on you and eventually going through you yes indeed in Christ there is victory and Paul experiences this victory no matter where he is catch this no matter where he is no matter what he's going through no matter how he feels about the situation anxious disappointed hurt depressed, he may feel like a failure. Paul disregards all that and embraces the truth that he has in Christ. And in so doing, he spreads the knowledge of who Christ is everywhere he goes like a sweet aroma. I had an aunt who was born and raised in Johannesburg, South Africa. Uh, she She was an elegant lady. The way she dressed, the way she carried herself, the way she sat. Uh, I remember how, how elegant and refined she was. But the thing I remember most about her was her perfume. And it, I, to this day, I couldn't tell you what scent it was, but I remember the perfume. And it was an incredible perfume because it, it had a strong presence in the room without being overwhelming. You know how some people wear too much perfume and you're like, whoa, give it a break. <laughs> okay, this was just this delicate presence of her in the room. And whenever she was nearby, you could tell she was nearby because you would get the scent of her perfume. It was never vague, always lingering in the air, a gentle reminder that she was near. You see, that's how Paul sees us, brothers and sisters. That's an aroma of Christ, a reminder of his presence. And it's not in what happens to us 
that that aroma rises up, but in how we handle what happens to us. There's where our witness is. If we are this scent of Christ everywhere we go, his aroma will rise up on us no matter what our circumstances are. That's what Paul's trying to tell him. For we are the, in verse 15, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who's sufficient for these things? We bear the promise of life to those who believe in Christ. But we also bear the promise of judgment to those who reject Him. Paul wants to know who can possibly do this. Who can be the aroma of Christ? Who can be the fragrance of life and death? For we we are not, in verse 17, for we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. He's saying, certainly not those who are causing strife in the church. They're not the aroma of Christ. Now, and we have to see the contrast here between the peddlers uh, and those who are sincere. Paul, who believe, Paul believes that those who are peddling the gospel for personal gain are damaging the church, it believes that they're hindering the gospel. They're not merely another group of people that, that just kind of disagrees with some of Paul's positions. They are false teachers. They are wolves among the sheep. But Paul and others who have been called are sincere believers. They're the faithful ones, sent by God, watched over by Him, judged by Him. And we can tell that because they live and speak for Christ. The aroma of Christ rises up from them. And this is how how Paul gains his victory over the things that he struggles with. It, It is in and for Christ. Now, notice, Paul's not looking for victory over the people around him. He's not looking for victory over the situations, but victory, listen, Paul is looking for victory over his inner struggle. The struggle he has with his pain and his anguish. The effort that he has to make in order to forgive and love those who have hurt him. This is the victory we're talking about. This is triumph in Christ. This is Paul's triumph in Christ. And this is how Paul joins the parade. This is how he spreads the aroma of Christ everywhere that he goes, leaving a trailing behind him. And this is how you and I participate as well. It's not necessarily a victory over those outside sources. It's over the struggle we have inside, the one that tells us that our anger is righteous, the one that insists that we're right and others are wrong, the the one that seeks to elevate us instead of Christ. Listen, victories over sickness and worldly situations and even football games may come. They may come, but they are never, ever guaranteed. The victory that you and I are guaranteed is over ourselves. It is over the inclinations of our flesh. It is is over the draw of who we were pulling us away from God, from who God is making us into. God is reshaping us, conforming us to His image. 
But we want to go back. How do we gain that victory? We trust in Christ. We remind ourselves that He's watching. We remind ourselves, like Paul did, that we are His aroma. And we ask ourselves, are we spreading His fragrance or ours? Are we part of the triumphant parade? Are we standing on the sidelines watching it go by? I say we jump in. I say we jump in by faith. I say that we jump in and we do our part. Some participation is required, amen? We do the best we can to represent Him. We do the best we can to fill the room with His aroma and reap the blessing of belonging to Him. Paul tells us that we can have triumph in Christ. We can have victory in Christ. But brothers and sisters, it's not over the world. It's over our own hearts. As God transforms our old hearts into new hearts, as he takes the old flesh and gives us a new life, we have to resist the draw to go back. We can do that in and by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. All we have to do is listen to it. And as we do, as we submit to it, we get in line and join the parade. Let's pray.